Welcome to episode 25 of the MMA Rundown. Uh, big week, big event at Boston that we just had. We had Dominic Reyes defeat Chris Weidman in the main event by knockout, possibly earning himself a title shot. We have Greg Hardy appearing to win a fight, but then having it taken back as a no contest because he used it in an inhaler between rounds. Macy Barber gets another win. There's a lot of hype around her right now. I'll, I'll talk about whether or not I think that's justified uh, given her most recent performance, but then also some of the performances before then. <clears throat> Recap the whole UFC Boston card. Uh, so there's like 12 fights in the card, so there's only three right there. Let's go through the rest as well. Preview UFC Singapore, which is going to be main evented by Ben Askren and Damian Maya, a fight that a lot of grappling, uh, grappling fans such as myself have been waiting for for a while. Aspen Ladd had an appeal that thankfully got struck down, but it was pretty close, where she was claiming that her TKO loss was a result of gender discrimination and almost had it overturned to a no contest. Uh, so I'll talk about that and then some of the responses that we've seen from that, including a weird little exchange between Leslie Smith and Justin Buckholtz. Kynan Dwarch and Nick Rodriguez had a rematch of the ADCC final from the over 99-kilogram division. Nick Rodriguez is a guy who interests me a lot just because he was a Division three wrestler, had about a year and a half of jiu-jitsu, and made it all the way to the finals of ADCC before getting knocked off by, by Kynan. Had a rematch. This one did not go as well for him as the first fight did. Uh, so I'll talk about some lessons learned between the first fight and the second fight and what we can take from this fight as well. Uh, Dylan Dennis has been in the news uh, a couple times recently for supposedly doing good things. I'll, I'll talk about whether or not what he did was, was good and whether or not I think that he's approaching it in the right way. <clears throat> Bellator has two events coming up this coming week, 231 and 232, including the fight between Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima, so I'll preview that. And then I'll talk about uh, a match that I talked about in the last podcast. I, I was supposed to have a jiu-jitsu match this weekend, and unfortunately that fell through for a handful of other a handful of reasons. So I'll talk about what happened there, and then also relay that back to MMA and sort of talk about how my experience is in ways that overlaps with what a lot of MMA fighters have to deal with. Some of them end up having to fight through things, some of them don't. The ones who don't oftentimes get ridiculed. So just try to give some firsthand um, experience from what just happened with me and see if there are any lessons we can take from that into the MMA world as well. But we'll go back to topic one, which is Dominic Reyes getting the KO win over Chris Weidman. This fight did not go how I expected it at all for a couple of reasons. For one, I thought that Chris Weidman was going to win this fight. I thought at the very least Chris Weidman would win the first round or two. I thought he'd be able to get Reyes down, which I guess he was, although for a very short period of time. But while I knew that Reyes probably would have the edge on the feet, I didn't think it would be as as clear as it was, and I think part of the reason for that is Chris Weidman didn't fight like someone who's been training striking for his whole career, someone who stood there with Anderson Silva for extended periods of times and hurt him, who stood there with TRT Vitor, who stood there with Leoto Machida back when he was a champion, who even stood and traded with Luke Rockle for a while when he was a champion. He, he fought like a guy who was uncomfortable with his chin, a guy who'd been knocked out recently, a guy who had lost confidence in his ability to take a shot, and there was just this urgency when the fight was in open space just to close the distance immediately and go for a takedown, and as a result, his striking just wasn't, like, the setups weren't there, the striking wasn't great, and as a result, he ends up just getting clipped really quick into the fight, uh, gets put down, shows some life off of his back, he's throwing some up kicks, at least trying to get some kind of guard, was sort of like threading in for a Dillahiva guard for a quick period of time. Uh, but then Reyes, <clears throat> I, I mean, I guess very long arms, was able to find a way from standing to hit a hammer, or hit a um, hit a hammer fist that went, um, I believe it was, from left to right, 
that uh, clocked right him in the chin, had him stunned there, landed a couple more, had him out, and that was the end of the fight right there. So for Dominic Reyes, the first thought I had after he, he gets the finish there is like, man, this this guy's probably got himself a title shot. Now, granted, it is worth mentioning that Corey Anderson and Johnny Walker have a fight coming up in a couple of weeks. There's no rush to be booking John Jones right now. So if either Corey Anderson or Johnny Walker have an impressive finish on their own right, they're probably going to have recency in their favor as well, and that may be enough to, to plant Reyes for the title shot. But with that being said... He definitely set a high bar for those two to have to clear if they're going to beat him out for a title shot right now. So Reyes is in a good spot. And this is after he is coming off of a, what was a split decision win that I thought he had lost to Vulcan Ozdemir. I didn't think he was as good as he's made out to be. Now granted, just because he put Chris Weidman out this quickly, that doesn't mean that he's significantly better than I thought he was. But it, I, I think it's safe to say he's better than, he, than I thought he was. But there was a lot from what Chris Weidman was doing that sort of threw me off there. I didn't expect him to to have as little confidence in his striking as he did. Never really took the time to set up any kind of rhythm on his feet. At least get Reyes having to worry about the strikes before the takedowns. He just sort of charged at him, and as a result, Reyes was able to counter and catch him with that big left and put him away not too long after. So for Chris Wyman, what happens from here, there's a lot of talk about him possibly retiring at this point. It's hard for me to say on that because if if Weidman's goal is going to be to be another be a UFC champion again, he's got a long road now after that loss. I mean, now granted, if he stays at 205, 205 isn't the deepest weight class. If he can string together a couple of wins, he'll find himself back in the title picture pretty quickly. I don't know that 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 is what he wants to do though. If he goes back down to middleweight, that can be a little bit tricky right now. There are a lot of middleweights who are moving up to 205, so in that way, it might sort of soften up the division, but he also has a handful of losses at middleweight as well, so for him, he's probably going to have to get a bunch of wins in a row, and for him, the real question is going to be, if he's going to try to make his way back to a title fight, where's his chin at now, and how much confidence is he going to be able to fight with on the feet, because if he fights with a lot of his other opponents, like he did with Reyes, where he's just trying to rush in and go for a takedown, looking like he's a one-dimensional wrestler, or like a one-dimensional grappler, he's going to be in trouble, but if he... If he believes in his striking more and he actually uses his striking more, we could see better stuff from him. Like he, His striking is a lot better than what we saw in that Reyes fight, and it's just one of those things where he just didn't want to use it. He had no desire to go for it, and as a result, he made Reyes' job a whole lot easier, and Reyes was able to make him pay for it. That's no knock on Dominic Reyes to say that Chris Wyman didn't give him the best look, but Reyes took the look that was given to him, and he, he made the best of it. He found a way to get back up after he was taken down. That's, that's worth some credit, but I was really surprised to see Wyman fight the way that he did. So for him, I guess figure out what your goals are right now. If your goal is to be a UFC champion, then I'd say whoever you fight next, you, you gotta you gotta believe in your striking. And if you if you find reason to believe that you were right and you just don't have the chin anymore, then you know what, maybe it is time to retire. But man, just the way he fought, it was, it was really disappointing for me. His grappling is still at a level where, with most guys, especially at 185 or 205. He's going to be able to take most guys down, and he's going to be able to control a lot of guys, too. So even if the striking isn't there, as long as he can get into grappling ranges, he's he's going to have areas where he can win a fight. But you, you don't want to get run into the same problem that Rashad Evans ran into, where Evans got to a point where he would only throw one punch at a time because he wasn't confident exchanging multiple punches and getting caught in an exchange. And as a result, his takedown setups just completely became worthless, and he wasn't able to get guys to the ground and wasn't able to win, and went on just a massive losing streak before he finally got cut by the UFC. So you don't want to see that happen again. Uh, to a guy like Chris Wyman, and I feel like after watching this fight, there's a chance that could be the case. But for me, 
the next fight for Chris Wyman is going to really say a lot about him, especially seeing how he decides to go about striking. And it'll be interesting to see who they match him up with as well. But I don't think he's done quite yet, but this was not a great look for him. For Reyes, like I said, title shot could be next if the if the Walker versus Anderson fight doesn't produce fireworks. So it'll take a while, but we'll, we'll see where they go from there. Next thing to talk about is Greg Hardy and his inhaler controversy. So first I'm going to talk about just the fight from a technical standpoint, and then I'll get into the inhaler thing as well. Greg Hardy's a guy who hasn't impressed me very much with his technique, but his power has impressed me. I feel like his technique is behind even where he's at experience-wise, even being a guy who's only been in the game for like two or three years, I feel like he should be further along with with his technique than he is. We didn't get to see much grappling in this fight, so I I really couldn't tell you where his grappling's at. I know in the Alan Crowder fight, his, his ability to fight off his back was just laughable. I have no idea what it looks like right now. I don't know what his top game looks like. I don't know what his guard passing looks like. So we really didn't learn anything there. But on the feet, I, I feel like we did learn a little bit. In past fights, one of the big issues he's had is, one, he keeps his hands down a lot, and two, he doesn't like to throw more than one strike at a time. In this fight, it was a lot of single-shotting still. So it was, it was a lot of one punch at a time. Uh, occasionally, he might throw one punch, the so Soli would come in to counter, and then he would throw another one as the Soli comes in. But it wouldn't be like he'd be stringing punches together so much. So, if you look at the final strike counts, over the course of three three full rounds, 15 full minutes, Greg Hardy landed 54 strikes. He threw 105, but he landed 54 uh, to Sicily's 26. So it's not like Hardy was really stringing a bunch of punches together here, but he did have a height advantage, at least. He, he had a length advantage, and he at least did a good job of making sure that Sicily had to just kind of rush in every time to close the distance. Sicily didn't do a really good job either to string punches together. You would have liked to have seen him throw a couple punches to sort of draw a counter out of Hardy, slip the counter, and then find a way in. But Sicily was also trying to go for one shot, and he was just lunging in with his overhand left over and over and over, and that really wasn't working for him. But at least from Hardy, it looked like his defense was better than it had been in previous fights. Uh, his punches were fairly accurate. He was pretty quick. Uh, he, he was pretty good about trying to read when Sicily was trying to jump in, and then oftentimes would intercept him with a jab or would throw a, a quick cross to intercept him. So there were some signs of improvement from Greg Hardy. I think there's still a long way to go. The power's there. The power is still there. But I feel like I haven't learned anything more about where his grappling is at compared to what we've seen in the past. His striking, uh, again, he's still not stringing punches together. He has power, like we know. At least he's getting a little bit better defensively, but there's still plenty of openings. So if he does get an opportunity against a, a higher-ranked fighter, that could be a problem for him. And in a way, having this fight taken away and have it go from a win to no contest, in a way, could potentially help him. Because for him, I, I feel like the worst thing that could happen for him right now is he gets rushed along too quick, gets put in there with someone who's way better than him, and they just blow him out. And if you keep winning, at some point the UFC is just gonna be like, "Well, man, he keeps winning. We gotta, we gotta find someone who can challenge him." And in t- having that win taken away, it'll be interesting to see how the UFC decides to handle this. Like, you wonder if the matchmaking is gonna be significantly different now that he, it's a no contest rather than had it been just a <clears throat> just a unanimous decision win. So in a way, that could help him. Now, as far as what made it a no contest, this gets really tricky. So. You can look at it from Hardy's angle, you can look at it from Sassoli's angle, and then you can look at it from the commission angle. I, I think had the commission felt like Hardy was just straight up cheating here, they would have DQ'd him. It wouldn't have been a no contest, it would have been a DQ. So the decision to make it a no contest, Hardy was up two rounds to none, uh, ends up losing the third round, but between the second and the third, he's tired. He gets his inhaler and uses it to catch his breath. So the question from there is, how... First first off, why was he allowed to? Now, when he was in the corner, he made a request saying, hey, can I use my inhaler? There was an inspector there from the commission 
who then asked him about it, and then Hardy said it's USADA approved, and then the commissioner was like, all right, whatever. Meanwhile, it was Hardy's corner that gave him the inhaler. So you have Hardy who requested it, but then you have the corner who allowed it to happen and who gave it to him, and then you also have the commissioner there who was like, all right, cool, whatever. So to blame this entirely on Hardy, I don't think is entirely fair. He has an experienced corner. He's got Dean Thompson in his corner. He's got the NATT corner. You would figure that if they were 100% sure that this that using an inhaler mid-fight was illegal, they would not have let him do it. You would figure that if the commissioner knew that, he would not have let him do it or would have at least like brought it to the ref's attention during the fight and they would have immediately had some sort of action to him. So one of the things I'm seeing a lot online and what I'm hearing from a lot of other fans is that they're like, this is obvious. You, you know you can't do it. And my question is, is it really obvious? Like, do we did we actually know before this fight 100% as a fact that you can't use an inhaler during a fight? Like, I feel like it's one of those things where... Like, if you asked me it before this fight, I'd be like, yeah, probably not. Like, I'm 99% sure not, but I'm not 100% sure. And I think most people would probably be in the same spot where it's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you can't do that, but I don't know for a fact. And I think that's why the commissioner, I think the commissioner might have been in that same position as well. They're like, I don't think you can. Are you sure? And that's when Hardy said, no, you can. Or or he was saying, yes, yes, I'm able to. You saw it, said I could. So, in that way, it, it, it's tough because, again, I, if Hardy... I don't know if Hardy knew that he couldn't do it during a fight. There's in-competition testing and out-of-competition testing. USADA, I believe, t- does tests where it's prior to an event, and then they also do tests after you competed. I don't know that USADA has a has much of a say, though, of what goes on during the 15 minutes of a fight, though. So I think there may have been some confusion there. Whether or not Hardy knew that USADA didn't have any say in the actual fight that was on the commission, or whether Hardy was confused himself, it's hard to say. But like back to that point about whether or not you can use an inhaler between rounds... Just ask yourself this. If I were to tell you that a fighter was drinking Gatorade during a round, would that be illegal? Are you 100% sure whether or not you know that's illegal or not? If I told you that a fighter was drinking like a, a carbonated beverage or a seltzer water, would, would that be illegal? Do you, do you know for a fact? Uh, is coconut water illegal? Is a pre-workout drink illegal? Like, I, I think for the most part, after this, it sounds like from what people are saying, water is the only thing that's legal. I don't know whether or not that's actually written in the rules or whether that's just Dana White trying to simplify things. But it, it doesn't seem to me like this is super obvious and like we know for a fact what's right and what's wrong here. And Greg Hardy felt that he was in his in, in the right to, to use the inhaler during the fight. His corner didn't stop him, so they at least were confused about it. They weren't 100% sure. So I don't know that I would say Greg Hardy's a, a massive cheater here, and I think because the commissioner allowed it, that's why they said, hey, look, we can't totally like take give you a loss here. So it does seem like in the decision to make it a no contest, there's at least some culpability from the commissioner, like, hey, look, we kind of messed this up too. From Greg Hardy's standpoint, if the commissioner says it's okay, if his corner says it's okay, if the amount of whatever is in that inhaler, I don't remember if it's like a steroid, if it's like a minor steroid or what it is exactly, but if the amount is underneath the allowable amount, and he takes it, is it fair for him to have his win taken away? I don't know that it is, and I'm pretty sure his management is going to challenge that as well. As far as for Ben Sassoli, you've got a guy worn down. He's going into the final round, and he, he takes an inhaler to, to artificially help his breathing. Though the commissioner said it was okay, by rule it isn't. Is it fair to you that you have to fight this opponent who's using the inhaler? No, it's not. So should you be penalized and given a loss when maybe had he not used the inhaler... You might have been able to wear him down a little more and maybe even get a finish or get a 10-8 and at least make a draw out of it. 
I, I guess in that way for Betsasoli, maybe it's fair that it goes to no contest. I, I don't know what his opinion on this whole situation is, whether or not he feels like he got cheated, whether he doesn't care, whether he still takes this as a loss, even though it's now a no contest. I'd be interested to know that, but to me, this isn't as simple as a lot of people are making. A lot of people are making it like, ah, oh, Greg Hardy's cheating again. Greg Hardy's just being a scumbag again. You can not like Greg Hardy all you want, but to me, how this should be handled in terms of win, no contest, or DQ shouldn't be based off of whether or not you think Greg Hardy deserves bad karma. It should be based off of what you think is right in a specific situation. Because what happens here is going to set a precedent for the future. And so if we just have it where it's, it's super harsh on Greg Hardy, well, then that's also going to have an effect on other fighters in the future. And I, I don't know if there are going to be any other, fighter, any other fighters in the future who are going to want to use an inhaler during a fight. But if we find that you actually can or you're allowed to administer X amount, that could change things for a lot of guys. If you find out that you can't, um, then at least that like sets a precedent and uh, other conventions are now on notice. So the next time something like this happens, they're, they're ready and prepared and this doesn't happen again. Next thing to talk about is Macy Barber. She got a win over Jillian Robertson. Barber is someone who I've talked about uh, on multiple podcasts and also um, in, in some videos as well. Someone who I see as being highly overrated right now. The, the point I make with her is that she's someone who I appreciate that she goes out and speaks with great confidence because I don't like seeing athletes, in particular fighters who aren't confident, uh, who are afraid to, to talk about how great they can be and then only to lose and then have to hear people say, haha, you're not that good. Because in reality, you can, you can tune most of that out and really who cares. And the thing is, when you do say that you're great and you actually do something great, it tends to amplify it more. So I, I like when fighters do what she's doing, at least from the talking aspect. It's just from a technical aspect, I just don't see, I don't see the greatness that she claims to have. I don't see a future champion when I watch her fight. I don't see someone who really should be climbing their way into like the top five or top ten of any division. Now, granted, she happens to be in one of the weakest divisions in the UFC at 125. This is a division where Roxanne Mataferi was fighting for a title not that long ago. So it's not as though the bar is set terribly high for for you to make it to the top ten, make it to the top five. This isn't like jujitsu where you could have a room of 20 people and no one will have a purple belt. It, in MMA, or in the UFC, if you have 20 people in a division, someone's going to be the champion. Five of them are going to be top five. Ten of them are going to be top ten. So it's not as though you have to be, like, at an excellent level to to be a top five fighter, or to be a top ten fighter, or to be a champion. You just have to be better than the rest of the people you're competing against, and she happens to be in a very weak field. But from what I saw in this fight, Jillian Robertson, I think it's worth giving Barbara credit in that she was in some defensive positions where, <clears throat> where Robertson was really forcing her to have to fight off some takedowns and defend some pretty tough grappling positions, and she was able to do it. With that being said, though, just on the feet, Robertson wasn't very good on the feet. She was landing decently. Uh, the final strike co- strike totals were 40 to 15, uh, 40 for Barber. Now, granted, that was after like there being like 20 or 25 unanswered strikes towards the end, so it was a lot closer before Barber hurt her. But when I was watching Barbara strike, it was just a lot of wide punches, a lot of keeping her head uh, still on the center line, a lot of keeping her hands down, obviously, because she's throwing wide punches. And you're just seeing openings for people who are more technical strikers to be able to, to catch her with straight punches, to to duck, to change their levels, and to get out of the way of a lot of her shots. And it feels like there's a lot of openings there. Now, we obviously saw with the last fight against J.J. Aldrich. Aldrich was a better striker, and Aldrich outstruck her pretty bad in the first round. Uh, but got clipped in the second round and sort of had a similar finish to Robertson where she was hurt up against the fence, uh, wasn't doing much to change her levels or to, to get her head out of the way and was just getting clipped over and over before the ref stepped in. Same thing happened here with Robertson where she got rocked. Uh, and then when she got rocked, she had her back against the fence, wasn't really changing her head level, wasn't ducking down, 
uh, wasn't trying to bob and leave, wasn't trying to shoot, uh, was sort of just covering up against the fence until the ref finally just stepped in. So, in, in that way, you really can't take too much away from Barbara and that she's doing what it takes to win. But from a, from a technical standpoint, I see a lot of openings in her striking. Her grappling, I, I just haven't seen a whole lot there to think that it's elite. For her to beat someone like Valentina Shevchenko, I mean, Shevchenko's going to tear her apart on the feet. It's not even going to be competitive. And, I mean, on the ground, I, I don't know, like... I don't know that I've seen enough to believe that Barbara's going to be able to get someone like, someone like Shevchenko to the ground, uh, let, alone, let alone be able to finish her there. So at least getting to the ti- getting the title, she's going to have to beat Shevchenko, and I don't see her doing that. Uh, so as far as her becoming the youngest champion, if she's not going to beat Shevchenko anytime soon, I don't see her beating Nunes anytime soon. I don't see her making 115. I think she was at 126 for this fight, and then was like tweeting out her thank yous to the UFC PI for helping her get down to 126. I mean, I don't see her getting down to 115 either, and Wei, Wei Li Zhang is also a better striker than her anyway. She throws much straighter punches and would probably be able to catch her pretty easily. It's just one of those things where it's like, it's good that she talks the way that she does. It's it's nice that people are interested in her, and it's nice that people are interested in watching her fight. But I just don't see from a technical aspect her being good enough to... I mean, maybe she finds a way, gets the right path, and earns a title shot if she gets a couple favorable matchups and really gets enough interest from fans, because it seems like she is drawing a lot of fan interest right now, but I just don't see her as a fighter who's ever really going to give Shevchenko any problems, and I feel like there are a lot of other fighters towards the top who are going to be able to outstrike her on the feet and and find other ways to beat her, because, yes, she's strong, but her technique still has a lot of room for improvement, and that's kind of one of the crazy things about her, is because usually when you have someone who's young and someone who's doing very well in a sport, Oftentimes, it's for the opposite reason of Barbara. For Barbara, it seems like the, the main reason why she's been so successful is her athleticism and her strength. It feels like in other sports, like you take hockey, for example, a lot of times you'll have like these really great young hockey players who are top draft picks, and they'll have plenty of skill. They'll be able to score. They'll be able to pass. They'll be able to do all the all the main skills of it, but they just won't have the strength to keep up with the rest of the league, and that's oftentimes why they'll have to take a couple of years before they're ready to actually get in the league. With Barbara, she doesn't have the technique, but she's got like the strength of someone who's been around and doing it for a lot longer, which is kind of odd. So for her, it's not as though she's going to get significantly stronger compared to her other competitors at 125. It's going to be the technique where she's going to have to make up some ground, and I don't know that I really... I I mean, yes, there's plenty of room to grow there, but it's not as though she's grown so much with her technique already that it leads you to believe that, oh, hey, in a couple of years she'll be black belt level on the ground and, like, amateur boxer or pro boxer level on the feet. Like, There's no reason to believe that she's going to get to that level technically on the feet or on the ground, so... Her issue is going to be dealing with fighters who are able to handle her physicality and who are just much better technically than she is. And I feel like there are going to be plenty of people who are going to be able to do that. And for that reason, I don't see her becoming the youngest UFC champion, as she plans to do. Uh, On to the rest of the card. Obviously, main event, we already talked about Chris Weidman falling to Dominic Reyes. First round KO. Yair Rodriguez with a unanimous decision win, 29-28 over Jeremy Stevens. Uh, Was lighting him up on the feet in the first round. Had him hurt really bad in the second, almost finished him there. Um, then towards the end of the first round, uh, Stevens got on top, was in a precarious position, and the announce table, and I'll get to this a little bit later on one of the earlier fights, they seem to be really blind to some really close submission attempts, but there was actually one that happened in this Stevens versus Rodriguez fight that I don't think a lot of people noticed, and that was when Rodriguez had, um, Stevens in what was called like a shoulder guard or like that triangle position. He went for a submission called a teepee, where you extend your legs out and then you grab, um, over top of their shoulders and then like underneath your hamstrings pretty much and then extend out and you can put a lot of pressure both on on one side you're putting pressure on the neck and on the other side you're putting pressure like into the armpit like kind of pushing it towards the other side of the neck and you can it, it, it's a very uncomfortable position to be in so sometimes you can get a pain tap just from neck pain 
Um, but sometimes if you get the pressure right, you can also get a, get a submission from just getting a, a clean choke out of it. Uh, so Yair was, was going for it. And Stevens, I don't know that he was ever close to tapping, but he looked like he was pretty uncomfortable there. Uh, but there was that attempt from Yair. He also had a couple other attempts where he looked like he was getting close to a triangle but wasn't able to get anything. Uh, third round comes around. Stevens takes him down, catching catching a kick, uh, lands some ground and pound. Not really enough to do any major damage or get the round into a 10-8 position. But either way, Jeremy Stevens, unfortunately for him, he gets his eye poked in the five-round fight and then gets into a three-round fight and pretty much wins the last six minutes of it. And you, you'd wonder how the fight would go if he had another two rounds to work, but unfortunately he didn't. So first fight, no contest. Second fight, fight of the night, but you don't get to see the full five rounds. So it'll be interesting to see if they try to rebook this fight for a third time as a main event, because I think it, it, it's a pretty interesting fight now in, in that way. Because you, for, for one, it's like, hey, this is a rematch of a fight of the night. Who doesn't want to see that? But then for two, hey, this fight could have been much different had it been five rounds. Let's let's run it back for five rounds. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen right now. I think for Yair Rodriguez, he's probably going to be moving up in the division and going up against another top contender. For Stevens, he'll probably be facing off against someone else who is um, trying to work their way up into the top 15. So that, that fight wouldn't be next, but down the line, maybe in a year or two, that, that could be a fight that makes sense and be an interesting to, one to watch. Then we had Greg Hardy against Ben Sassoli. Joe Lozon versus Jonathan Pierce. My goodness, the... I, I mean, on the feet, he, he just lit Pierce up, had him rocked, um, but then got to mount after he, he was able to get Pierce down. When, from there, Pierce tried to turn to his back, and while he was doing that, he got caught in this power half position, and I would really like to know how his shoulder is doing right now because it looked like his shoulder took some serious damage there, uh, especially towards the end of the fight, but he was just completely stuck in place. Um, his shoulder was getting cranked down pretty hard, was getting hit in the face over and over, and that was it. For for Lozon, it, it sounds like he was talking to Dan White before the fight and that he said this was going to be his last fight. And no better way to end than that. With that being said, if you have a dominant performance like that, is it easy to stop and say, hey, hey, this is it? I, I mean, look, if, if you're Joe Lozon and you retire right now, and you, you, you don't fight for the next 5, 10 years, maybe for the rest of your life, like, like you're going to be stopping before before you had to, and I guess in that way it's sort of tough to, to know that you, you had more in you and you didn't really give it give it your all and go all the way to the finish. Do I think Joe Lozon's a title contender? No. Do I think it would make sense for him to, to end his career with a fantastic win in Boston like this? I think it would make sense. It, it's just sometimes as a fighter, you, you spend so much of your life developing skills like this, you're still in a great position athletically where you can do a lot, and for him, it might be tough for him to, to say he's done for good, but if he does decide he's done for good, this is probably a good time to do it because you're, you're probably not going to get a better better place to, to get a final win or a better a better way to get a final one than he did right here. Then we had Macy Barber defeating Jalen Robertson, and then Duran Wynn losing a split decision to Darren Stewart. Uh, agreed with that decision. Wynn really didn't look that great on the feet. Was able to get a couple takedowns, but really wasn't able to do much on the ground when he had, when he had control of Stewart. Um... Not very good passing guard, uh, not really good from top, was almost triangled at one point during the fight by Darren Stewart, who's not really known for his grappling at all. Uh, wasn't really landing major ground and pound. Uh, when Stewart would give up his back, he wasn't setting in hooks or trying to take the back. He was just trying to ride, but then would lose control anyway. So for Duran Wynn, you miss weight. You have an uninspiring performance like this against a guy you called out, against a guy who in theory should have been a good matchup for you, given that he's not known for his grappling, and it just didn't go very well for him. So... What does Deron Wynn do from here? I, I mean, being compared to Daniel Cormier, who not that long ago was a champion in two divisions, it, it's tough. I, I think in this way, it, it sort of gets people to realize, look, you're, you're, you're a decent fighter, but you're not like a championship-level fighter who just needs to beat a couple guys and prove it. 
So maybe they slow things down for him, give him a, a few more guys to who are lower ranked in the division, kind of work his way up from there. But after watching that fight, I didn't really get any any indication that Duran wins a guy who at some point is going to be challenging for a UFC title, let alone winning one. Uh, then we have Charles Rosa versus Manny Bermudez, another fight where DC and well, the two DCs seem to be missing a really close submission attempt. I think for one, I, I can understand why they didn't think it was that close and that Bermudez was in a position where you would think that he'd be able to stack into Charles Rosa and be able to defend, or at least defend a little bit better. But with that being said, it was still like a, clearly a, an armbar attempt. He had the, the leg over, he had the elbow in. Uh, so it, at, at the very least, you got to be like, oh, hey, look, there's a there's an armbar attempt here. Like, Bermudez is in trouble, he needs to watch out. Uh, but it seems like Rosa was able to, to do enough to extend enough there to get the tap from Bermudez. There were some people talking about after the fact how Rosa had his toes in the fence. I don't know that that made the armbar any tighter. That really had an effect on it. Uh, typically in that position, you want to actually extend out. So having the toe in the fence, in a way, sort of jams you up. Um, it's not as though he's using the toe in the fence to keep Bermudez from stacking him. I don't know that that would be the case. So to me, like, yes, the toe is in the fence, but I don't know that the armbar... I don't know that that detail of having the toe in the fence is why the armbar got finished compared to what would happen had the toe not been in the fence. So I don't think it was that ma- that big of a deal. I don't think Manny Bermudez plans to appeal it anyway. Uh, for for Bermudez, really rough go of it. He had a good start in the UFC. He had, had a really a few really nice submissions. Then has this really bad fight with Casey Kenny where he misses weight badly. They have to schedule the fight at a catch weight. So he moves up to 145, misses weight at that division too. So he's missed weight in two straight fights in two straight or in two different divisions. Uh, lost to a guy who's significantly smaller than him. Then in this fight, ends up losing um, despite being three pounds over. So for him, it, it sounds like this might be it for his UFC career, at least for for this run in the UFC. It looks like he's probably going to have to go back to the regional circuit because uh, Dana was asked about him later on, and Dana's like, yeah, if you're missing way two fights in a row and losing two fights in a row, that's definitely not a good thing. So for Bermuda's kind of a tough go. He, he's a fun guy to watch. He's, he's very good grappling, very fun to watch, but... I think this is going to be it for him in the UFC for this run. Hopefully he can get some more wins on the regional scene and find his way back, but doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, then we have Molly McCann getting a 30-25 unanimous decision win over Deanna Belbita. Kyle Bokniak loses a unanimous decision to Sean Woodson. Randy Costa with a knockout of Boston Salmon. Court McGee falling to Sean Brady. Brandon Allen defeating Kevin Holland by Renick choke. And then Tanner Bozer with a unanimous decision win over Daniel Spitz. Uh, so that takes us into UFC Singapore, which has a very exciting main event coming up. This is going to be Ben Askren versus Damian Maya. How this fight's going to go, that remains to be seen. It's going to be a full five-round, 25-minute fight. You figure that if they decide that they're going to counteract their grappling and both are going to stand, that, that probably favors Damian Maya. Maya, at least for long periods of his career, tried to work on his striking before going back to it. There was a period of time at middleweight where he was training with Vanderlei Silva very, very often and really trying to work at his striking before he realized that wasn't the best move for him and went back into trying to wrestle everyone and take them all down. But I think that time that he spent really trying to focus on his striking, it, it's, it's going to favor him against a guy like Ben Askren who almost never works on his striking. He just kind of works on his striking as ways to get to the ground. Now a point that Askren's made and a point that's a fair point at that is that Damian Maia typically likes to work off top not off bottom. He, he does have submissions off his back, but where he's really dangerous is once he's able to, once he, if he's on bottom, he, he gets a sweep, which oftentimes is some sort of setup, usually half guard into a single leg takedown, gets on top with that single leg takedown. And then from there, he's able to pass guard, get to mount, take the back, and then get a choke. The key there being that single leg takedown that he uses to get on top. Ben Askren's point is like, look, I, I don't see Maya being able to take me down for the feet. 
if Maya's on his back and he goes for a single leg, I feel like I can scramble Maya out of it and not get caught in that position. So if Maya can't get the single leg takedown, if he can't establish top position, then what's Maya going to do to beat Ben Askren on the ground? And that would mean he's either going to be catching him in triangles or trying to attack submissions off his back, or he's just going to be trying to work his way up into sweeps and not being able to get anything. And Askren's a guy who has gone against some legit high-level jiu-jitsu guys in the past, and when you watch the matches, oftentimes he'll get top position, and other guys will try to work for sweeps, and every time they try to take him over and take him off balance, he'd find a way to scramble up and get back to top. So it's possible that this fight could just be Ben Askren trying to take Damian Maya down, not overcommitting anything where he gets caught in any submissions, and then every time that Maya tries to go for a sweep, that then Askren just defends it and either goes back to a neutral position or stays on top and then just keeps on working. Because you'd figure Askren probably is going to have a better gas tank than Damian Maya will here. So that could be one way for him to win. I don't see Askren TKOing Maya. I don't see him knocking out Maya. Definitely don't see him submitting Maya. But it's possible that he could just kind of put a put a pace on him like that for for, the, for most of the fight and find a way to win. For Damian Maya, <laughs> if he does get Askren down, Askren's going to really have to figure out how he wants to go about getting back up. If you look at how most folk star wrestlers go about getting back up, they oftentimes expose their back. You do that against Damian Maya, you're in major trouble. So for Maya, it, it might just take one takedown or it might just take one sweep for him to, to get in the positions he needs to to get the finish here. If he does that, then great for him. Do I think he will? I, I just don't know. I, I don't know that if he just tries to wrestle with Askren the entire time that that's going to be the best move for him. I think if you're trying to make the best game plan for Damian Maya, you're just going to say, hey, look, we're going to treat this like a striking match right now. If Ben Askren wants to take us down to evade strikes, then he's probably going to take some risky shots, and in doing so, he may give you some opportunities to catch him. Um, if Askren just tries to strike with you, then great. You're probably going to win that. And if, if Askren tries to play more defensively on the feet, you can land some shots and at least use those punches at setups uh, to, to get some better opportunities to get the takedown. Because in a lot of his recent fights, it's not as though his striking's really done a whole lot to set up. It's oftentimes kind of like pumping out a jab and then trying to use, like, a jab to set it up. If he can land some serious shots and at least, like, stun Ben Askren, his opportunities to get some takedowns are going to significantly increase. And if he does get top position, that's really where he's going to shine here. So for for Damian Maya, I think he... I, I think if both fighters fight to the... fight their best using the skills they have, I think Damian Maya's got the edge here. I just don't know whether or not Damian Maya's going to use his striking in the way that he should. And for that reason, it's just going to be a tough fight, and it's one that I can't wait to watch because it, it could go both ways for that reason. In the coming event, we have Michael Johnson versus Stevie Ray. Then we have Frank Camacho versus Benil Dariush. Surreal Gone uh, making his return. He's Francis Ngannou's training partner that has a lot of hype behind him. He'll be fighting Dante Almaze. We have Muslim Salikov versus Lorena Staropoli. Uh, then on the prelims, we have Rana Marcos versus Ashley Yoder. Alex White versus Rafael Fiziev. Enrique Barzola versus Mosar Evlovev. Uh, Sergey Pavlovich versus Maurice Green. Vloma Lukbunmi versus Alexandra Albu, uh, and Rafael Pessoa versus Jeff Hughes. Uh, so not exactly the biggest names on the undercard, but oftentimes when you're fighting, whether it's in America or whether it's overseas, a lot of the fighters who are going to be on the card are going to be fighters who you're not going to have to pay major travel expenses for. So they're in Singapore. They're definitely going to have some international fighters who are from that part of the world to, to be fighting on the card. So that makes sense there. If, if you're better, though, and you'd like to know about Everyone who's on a card before you put money down. This might not be the easiest card to, to play some bets on, that's for sure. Next thing to talk about is Aspen Ladd and her appeal that almost went through. So 
her her claim, and I, I did a video on this, and in that video I actually showed the, the stoppage, so I think it's worth watching that video. It, it's going to do better than just what this segment go, talks about here. But in that video, what I talked about is that her claim was Herb Dean stopped the fight too soon, and the reason why he stopped the fight wasn't as though, it wasn't because she stopped intelligently defending herself, it's because she's a woman, and Herb Dean felt as though he had to protect the woman and step in early, and as a result, it was gender discrimination, and it wasn't anything else that was responsible for the stoppage. Crazy thing is, is that there was a panel of five commissioners who had to vote on this, whether or not that defense was accurate or not. Two of those commissioners were women, three of them were men. All three men said, no, this is not gender discrimination. Both women did say it was gender discrimination. So had there been one more person to vote that it was gender discrimination, this win for Jermaine Duranamy would have been overturned to a no contest, and they would have said that the reason why it was because there was gender discrimination at hand for the stoppage. Now, the stoppage, I, I just don't see it at all. If you're going to make the claim that there's gender discrimination, I feel like you kind of act, actually have to have a study and like go through all the men's fights, go through the female fights, look at all the stoppages, and find a way to objectively look at them and say, hey, look, this is proof that refs will step in a little bit sooner for men than they will for women. We had no such study. I don't even know how you would make such a study because it, it's not as though that's, that's something easy to prove. A lot of these stoppages are subjective. There's a lot that goes into them. But just to claim, hey, look, I've watched a handful of fights. I think from the fights I've watched that the stoppages tend to decide in a way that is more careful when it's with a woman than it was with a man. That's just not proof of anything. That's just sort of your opinion. And to see that go as far as it did here where Herb Dean was almost effectively convicted here of being a gender discriminator and how he stopped a fight between Aspen Ladd and Jermaine Durand is absolutely ridiculous. And I, I, I mean, I'm just glad it didn't happen that way. But for Aspen Ladd, I, I think a lot of fans are going to be looking at her in a pretty negative light as, as a result for her not just trying to get that loss taken off, even though it was a pretty clean loss, but to throw her being on the bus this way and try to make it, it sound as though he was discriminating against her based on gender. I just think it's a ridiculous thing to do, and I'm glad it didn't go through. I'm glad it didn't work out. Now, one of the points that came up during this is Aspen Ladd, one of the points that she had made is that she felt like, as a part of this gender discrimination thing, that she feels that fans and even other training partners view women as being less, not as good at fighting as men are. Um, they're not as technical, they're not as skilled, uh, they don't take punches as well, and she feels like that's wrong. And Justin Buckholz, who, former UFC fighter, uh, former coach at Team Alpha Male, had a bunch of guys who were ranked in the top 10, top 15, top 5. I believe he even uh, coached for a couple championships as well. He made a point where he's like, uh, can we all agree that men are better than, or it says, can we all agree that men are better at, in all caps, fighting than women, and then with a face palm? And there's really nothing that should be wrong with that. Obviously, that is the case. Men are definitely better at fighting than women. Just watch them fight if you want to believe that. I mean, think about who the greatest female fighter of all time is. It's Amanda Nunes. She's the champ at 135 and 145. Imagine Amanda Nunes fighting in the men's divisions at 135 or 145. Like, imagine her having to fight Max Holloway or Jose Aldo. Like, it'd, it'd be terrible. It'd be a mess. Imagine her having to fight against um, Henry Cejudo, Marlon Marais, TJ Dillashaw. Uh, like, like, again, it would just be a mess for her. She would get just obliterated. Like, we're, we're obviously at a point in the sport, and I'm sure we'll probably, for a long time, if not forever, be at a point in the sport where just the skill, the physical attributes, the strength, the power, the speed it's a lot higher in the men's divisions than it is at the female divisions. And that's not just saying in general, that's even talking weight class to weight class where you have the, where you have weight class overlaps like 135 or 125. Like that, that just is what it is. So for Aspen Ladd to make a claim like, oh wow, can you believe that people think this? Yeah, of course they do. It's true. 
but then for Justin Buckles to point that out, it's like, yeah, again, obviously it's true. But an, an interesting thing from there, though, is that Leslie Smith, who had made her name not by being a great fighter, because I believe her record now is 11-7-1, uh, is on the greatest win streak of her career at three fights in a row right now, so she was 8-7-1 prior to that. Um, but she made her name being the one who felt as though the UFC was underpaying fighters and they were Monopoly, even though he got one Bellator and a bunch of other promotions out there that are oftentimes bidding for the top fighters, and especially the most marketable fighters. Uh, but that was her, her big claim to fame anyway. But her response to Justin Buckholz was, Hi, Justin Buckholz. I'm writing a paper tonight for a class, and I wonder if you'd be willing to give me a couple of quotes that I can use about how prevalent cultural beliefs like this are. Again, this prevalent cultural belief that she's talking about is that men are better at fighting than women. So this is just her trying to be a little sassy, like, Oh, oh really? You, you think that men are better than, at fighting than women, huh? And then Buckholz's response was, Am I wrong? Question mark, Which is a fairly simple response. So at this point, you'd figure if Leslie Smith was arguing in good faith, she would say, yes, you are wrong. Here's why women are better at fighting than men. Uh, but no, obviously, she's very wrong. So she says, I was hoping to ask more questions, but since you'd rather make a spectacle out of this conversation, I guess I'm cool. Thanks for responding, kind of. Uh, again, trying to make a spectacle. All he asked was, am I wrong? Uh, so a pretty evasive answer there. Uh, Buckholz then responded, I hope you don't. Uh, then Smith again responded to that am I wrong thing and she said judging by my career compared to yours I'd say you're wrong so again she's not arguing that women are better fighters than men she's saying that based on her career compared to Justin that he's wrong but even in that ad hominem attack it doesn't make any sense because Justin Buckholz 16 and 11 uh, five fight UFC vet then you have Leslie Smith 11 and 7 11 7 and 1 and I think had like 7 fights in the UFC but Neither of their records are all that impressive, but when you take both of their unimpressive records and then consider the fact that Leslie Smith has done nothing in coaching, and Justin Buckholz has coached numerous ranked fighters and even coached some champions, you could definitely say that Buckholz, at least from an accomplishment standpoint, has done more in the sport, and that's with him being in a, him being a man who's had to fight in men's divisions, whereas Leslie Smith has fought in female divisions, which are obviously less skilled. But again, she's not arguing that the women's divisions are more skilled or that there's equal skill there. She's just trying to take ad hominem attacks and be evasive with Justin Buckholz, but I guess she's built up enough of a following where, at least on Twitter, she she got more positive feedback than Buckholz did, which, again, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then respond to him saying, No thanks, I fight for money. I'd rather not touch you. I, I think this was to Buckholz um, being more direct and challenging her. She says, I fight for money. I'd rather not touch you. Challenging women is the only thing that makes you look dumber than challenging women's fighting ability, which that's fucking, that's hilarious. That you would be angry at Justin Buckholz for saying that men are better at fighting than women. Then he challenges you and you're saying, oh, wow, look how tough you are. You're challenging women. Well, if you guys are equally as good, then what's the point there? Like, what point are you making? Uh, the other point she had is that she he weighs more than her and she still has a fight career to focus on. But but again, like, nothing about what Leslie Smith's made sense. It was either just evasive stuff or it was her um, just ad hominem attacking Justin Buckholz. But I think at this point, if, if anyone would try to argue that women are equal at fighting to men or better at fighting than men, that's ridiculous. If you're going to make the argument that an untrained man would beat a trained woman, that's wrong. But if you're trying to compare, like, athletes from both sports, athletes from men's MMA and athletes from female MMA, there, there's no question that the men are further along than the women are, and it's not even close. So Leslie Smith is trying to get in this argument, then also every time that she gets pushed on it, just being evasive or using ad hominem, I mean, I think as long as people see what she's doing, then okay, whatever, but it's just weird that she got in that argument. Anyway, before I get done with this topic, I did want to mention with Aspen Lad, the stoppage that happened, she got dropped with a, an overhand right, 
was facing the complete opposite direction of where Jermaine Duranamy was, had both hands on the mat, wasn't protecting herself from a, a further punch. And while her hands were on the mat, she got clipped with another punch, and that's when, or as that punch was coming, and it was clear that she wasn't able to defend herself from it, that's when Herb Dean stepped in. Even though he did step in, she still got caught with that punch clean, and that's when the fight was over. So if you're a ref, you got to stop the fight when the fighter stops intelligently defending himself. It's pretty clear that she stopped intelligently defending herself at that point, so that's when he stepped in. Could he have given her a little bit more time? Maybe. With hindsight, seeing her turn around and at least still seem to be there after taking that second punch, would it have been nice to see the fight keep going? Maybe. But it, again, you have to react in the moment. You can't always rely on someone taking a huge shot and then being okay right after. If they get rocked, they're facing the wrong way, and another big punch is coming. Stepping in before that punch lands or as that punch lands is not necessarily the wrong move. So I have no issue with Herb Dean. I definitely don't see him as a gender discriminator, as, as he said himself. Next point to get to is with Nick Rodriguez. This is a guy who drew a lot of interest in the jiu-jitsu community for being a guy who was a D3 wrestler who had about a year and a half of jiu-jitsu and who made it all the way to the ADCC finals before losing to Kynan Dwarch. I believe his jiu-jitsu record right now is something like 45-3. and three. So just a ridiculous record despite not being like an amazing wrestler. He's not like a D1 wrestler. He's not a D1 All-American. He's not a national champion. Um, and he doesn't have a ton of jiu-jitsu experience either. And what I looked at with his ADCC matches was looking at how he was able to get so far, how he was able to make his way to the finals. And one of the big points that I brought up was that he would find ways to be active on the feed and at least do enough to to get a judge to sort of push things in his favor as being the guy who's more active. But when the fight would hit the mat, he would oftentimes be pretty evasive, sort of stay away, not really try to cut through anyone's guard, more so try to pass from the outside and stand on the outside. And what I was interested in seeing was after seeing his ADCC um his ADCC performance, two things are going to happen. On his end, he's going to keep improving because he's going to have more time in the gym. He's going to have more time training. But opponents are also going to get a read on what he's doing, and they're going to be able to make adjustments to him. So the question is, what's going to happen quicker, his continued improvement or the adjustments that opponents are able to make on him? And that's what really interested me in this rematch with Kynan Dwarch, is that in the first fight that they had at ADCC, um, Kynan really wasn't able to get much done on the feet. Uh, almost got his guard passed at one point, um, and then finally just decided to like kick away at... Nick Rodriguez ended up getting a double on him, of all things, um, but took him down with a double leg, got his back, and then with the back points was able to hang on there and get the victory. And so what I was interested in seeing is how do fighters adjust to him, and I think the big thing is once you go to the ground with him, really chasing after him and trying to close the space and keep him from, from staying out in space, and that's what kind of did. Kind of pulled guard a couple times in this match, and once he would pull guard, he would Im- immediately just start scooting his hips towards Nick Rodriguez, try to capture a leg, try to capture something to, to stay in tight. Uh, first time, Rodriguez was able to get away, and they stood back up. Second time, um, Kynan was able to get in uh, get in on a leg entanglement, went for a toehold, and then from that toehold, transitioned to an outside reap, or I think what um, Donahue would call it, like an outside Senkaku. Uh, but then from there, got into what's known as the honey hole position, and was able to capture a heel hook from there and get a finish. So it was the first submission win over Nick Rodriguez. Um, and for him now, his only losses are to Hudson Taylor, who's a former D1 All-American from the University of Maryland in a black belt, so had the wrestling to keep up, keep up with Rodriguez and had the jiu-jitsu to beat him. And then um, Kynan Duarte, who's the black belt world champion and ADCC world champion, but he was able to to use more jiu-jitsu in this one, Where, whereas in the first match at ADCC, he, he actually took him down with the double leg and was actually able to beat him with wrestling, and Hudson Taylor was able to beat Nick Rodriguez with wrestling. This was really the first match where we saw someone beat Nick Rodriguez with jiu-jitsu, and the way they did it was by pulling guard, by chasing after him, by keeping him from staying on the outside, and as a result, he was able to find his way and use the toe hole to get into that outside reef. And then from the reef, was able to get a heel hook. So really nice finish from there. 
So moving forward, it'll be interesting to see how other fighters who have to go up against Nick Rodriguez are able to make adjustments to that. It'll be interesting to see how Nick Rodriguez continues to improve, but this was a match I really wanted to see. I really wanted to see how some of the top guys were going to make adjustments to Nick Rodriguez after seeing him fight at ADCC, and it looks like Tiny made a smart adjustment there and was able to get a quick win there rather than going 20 minutes and winning 3 nothing like he did at ADCC. He ends up getting a heel hook finish and wins by submission within two minutes here at Fight to Win. Next thing to talk about is Dylan Dennis. So Dennis has long been happy to, to be a bad guy in the sport. He's been happy to piss a lot of people off and just kind of act really cocky. And recently he's done a couple of things that people have, have taken as pretty positive. One was after Joe Lozon won, he put up a video of Lozon and him having a match. and was like, hey, good scrap, appreciate you. And what I found weird about that is that the, the video he put was just a highlight of him beating up on Joe Lozon before he ended up tapping with the Darst choke. So it's just a pretty weird backhanded compliment there. But while he was trying to be nice and say, hey, you're a great fighter, hey, good job. He's also like showing a video of him tapping the guy, which I think is sort of like a weird and cocky thing to do. But the big thing for, with him was that there was this person, uh, this 15-year-old, who got beaten up and bullied at school. And Dylan went out of his way to reach out to that kid and say, hey, look, man, I'll pay for your jiu-jitsu lessons. Like, let's get you into jiu-jitsu. And he would just be posting a bunch of messages along the way. And one of the things with, with charitable activities is that oftentimes when you go out of your way to publicize that you're doing something charitable, I think a lot of people, and rightfully so, feel as though you, there might be something something odd at play as though it, it seems as though when, when you're going out of your way to publicize it, you're, you're more so trying to get attention for yourself than just doing what's right. It's more so that you're trying to get people to applaud you for doing what's right. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Now, granted, is that a bad trade-off? Like if I do something great for you and and I try to get positive attention for it, like maybe I shouldn't be getting the positive attention, but if I'm still doing right by you, is, is that necessarily a bad thing? I, I would say no, it's still probably still a good thing overall in total. Even if I'm being a little bit egomaniacal about it, still trying to, like, get people to applaud me. At the end of the day, if I'm doing something good, like, it, it, I, I think on balance, it's still, it's still good. Now, granted, it seems like the kid didn't have a ton of interest in, in getting this jujitsu lesson from Dylan Danis. Not everyone likes jujitsu, not everyone wants to do jujitsu. I don't know whether or not this is someone who, if the kid just didn't have any interest in doing jujitsu, maybe he just didn't want to, maybe after getting beat up, going into a martial arts school where people are going to continue to beat you up and teach you how to get beat up, or t teach you how to beat someone else up, maybe that's not the most exciting thing for you to do. So I don't, I don't know what the kid was thinking on, on his end, but with Dylan publicizing it all the way through, pretty much like copying and pasting every single message that he had with the kid, I feel like at least on him, his end he was probably doing a little bit much where it's like, dude, just like, like just do something good. If you want to tell us about what happened after the fact, okay, that's fine. I, I think there can be something positive about that. Definitely within the jiu-jitsu community, like sending this message of, hey, we can... We can reach out and we can we can help people like this kid who gets bullied. There's definitely some positive to it, but it sort of felt like in a way that Dylan was was going out of his way to not just to help the kid out, but also to sort of like help himself out and get like a bit get a good um, PR story out of it for himself. And he he got that story for himself. Um, but for me, my my big question is, how's a 15 year old doing? He he did show up to one class. Is he still training now? Uh, did he appreciate it? Like how, how happy is he? Because at the end of the day, like I mentioned. There's a balance here. I think there's a negative balance here that you kind of have to put on Dylan for going out of his way to, to be viewed positively for it. But if the, if the kid enjoyed it, if it was good for the kid, if the kid really learned a lot from it, if the kid's going to grow from it, then on on balance, it's still a good thing that Dylan did. It's still a good thing um, that Dylan was doing there. So hopefully that's how it worked out. But in the future, if Dylan's going to continue doing charitable stuff, which I hope he does, um, maybe don't send screenshots every step of the way like it's fine to tell people about the good stuff you do but 
I feel like Dylan kind of overdid it on this one, and hopefully he, he sort of chills out next time he does something really, really nice like this. Um, a couple of fights that are coming up this weekend for Bellator. We have Bellator 231 and then Bellator 232. In the main event of 231, we have Frank Mir versus Roy Nelson in a fight that was interesting like eight years ago and doesn't really mean a whole lot now, but at least on name value, it's still an interesting fight to watch. Although, I would have to think that Roy Nelson's probably going to land a big overhand right here and knock out Frank Mir, who hasn't really shown to have a great chin recently. Then we have Phil Davis uh, fighting against Carl Albrechtson. Edruth is making his return since losing to Neiman Gracie. He'll be fighting Jason Jackson. And then we have Jake Hager fighting Anthony Garrett. And then on Bellator 232, which will be on Saturday, we have Rory McDonald versus Douglas Lima, Paul Daly versus Saba Hamasi, Nick Newell will be returning to Bellator against Manny Muro. We got Patrick Mix fighting Dominic Mazzotta. This is going to be a really interesting fight. Both of them are really good grapplers. And then Vitaly Minikov versus Javi Ayala. So some decent fights on both cards, but I think the big one to look forward to is Roy versus Douglas Lima. Roy barely edged out Lima and just got obliterated, obliterated with leg kicks in the first fight. Uh, it looked like Lima heading into the fifth round was in a good spot to win it, but Roy was able to take him down and steal that fifth round. It'll be interesting to see what adjustments are made this time around. I, I think a lot of people are expecting Lima to win. Lima is the favorite, even though Roy won the first fight. Uh, for Roy, had a good performance against Neiman Gracie after their, a not-so-great performance against John Fitch. So for him, I think it's always going to be interesting to see how he fights here. But this is a guy who he recently beat. And if he gets blown out by Douglas Lima in this fight, you, you, you kind of have to wonder where Roy is at right now. Because we did have some questions about him mentally early on, earlier on in this tournament. Uh, and then if Douglas Lima wins, then great for him. He gets his title back and a million dollars as well on top of that. And the final thing to talk about is an event that I was planning on participating in this weekend called Tap Cancer Out. So they do something called a submission-only showcase. It's effectively like a, an MMA card, but with jiu-jitsu matches. So instead of it being like 12 fights over the night like what the UFC does, they have like 20 jiu-jitsu matches. They're just single, singular matches. My match would have been seven minutes long. Um, submission only. If it goes to the decision, that's pretty much whoever gets closer to getting a submission or whoever is more aggressive effectively wins. And during this week, this was a match I took on a week and a half notice. Last week I put up a fundraising link uh, so you guys could donate to, to the cause for Tap Cancer Out. But during the week, I'm sure you can probably tell my tell by my voice right now, it still isn't completely right, but got a really bad cold. Um, also had a pinched nerve in my neck. I'm not sure where the nerve pinch came from. I, I felt it after waking up on Wednesday, but I was also training on Monday night. I don't know if it was something that had carried over from that. Um, but that pinched nerve ended up making it where, like, turning my head in certain directions was extremely painful. I couldn't turn all the way through. And it was one of those things where, like, as the week went on, it, it kept getting better, but it never got to the point where... I had the mobility in my neck to actually take a jiu-jitsu match to get to the point where I could even, like, roll, let alone, com- let alone compete. I mean, even if I was, like, going up against a white belt, too, I knew their game completely, knew their game entirely well. And I felt like I could run right through them. I, I probably wouldn't feel comfortable, like, rolling with someone like that, let alone taking a match against someone I've never gone against before, someone who oftentimes, especially from top of half guard, likes to go for dart chokes and go for guillotine chokes, likes to snap down and go for guillotine chokes from, the, from standing. Like, it, it was just not a good matchup, given the injury I had. I talked to the event organizer on Thursday. Again, this was a Saturday event, saying, hey, look, um, this is the situation I'm in right now. I'm going to try to be ready by Saturday, but just want to let you know. And ultimately, once Saturday came around, it still wasn't ready. And you see this happen every so often in in MMA, where sometimes fighters are just in in terrible condition. They do take the fight. And if they take a fight in a really bad condition, they lose. Oftentimes, people just put that on them, and you lose one fight, and all of a sudden, it takes you like two years to get back to the point where you, you just were before you had the loss. So pro fighters have to keep that in mind. Um, you also have to consider sometimes fighters, 
they decide, hey, look, I'm just not ready. I'm not able to take the fight, and whether they back out day of the Wayne or whether they, they back out before then. And that's one in my case. The Wayne was actually not an issue at all. I walk around at, like, 143. The match was at 155, so weight, cut, weight was never an issue for me. Even if it was, like, 145, and I had to, like, kind of watch the skill somewhat closely just to make sure I never went over. Like, that could have even been annoying, but it wasn't even that. So weight wasn't even a consideration for me, and it was still, like, a really bad situation. So you, for for pro fighters, when they, when they have to back out last second, a lot of times people just give them crap. Sometimes... I mean, one of the recent examples you would think of is with Robert Whitaker, who had a really bad hemorrhoid, I believe. He had to pull out. And you just see the way that fans just, just treat these fighters. And I think it's worth noting that whenever there's a fight scheduled, the fight's going to be on that date regardless. If you got a fight scheduled for October 19th, you got to be ready by October 19th. And if you're, if you're sick, if you aren't healthy, it's not like you can push it back a couple days until you're ready. It's not like you can push it back a couple weeks until you're ready. You just have to either take that fight and be in a really bad spot physically and, and hope for the best or you, you have to back out because you did everything you could to be ready by that date but you just weren't able to do so so i just think it's something that fans need to think about a little bit more when they're when they're watching fighters if a fighter puts on a, an unusually bad performance maybe consider that might have been the case and don't write them off for their career and don't don't write them off as a oh, well they're this much worse than the fighter they just fought even if they weren't fighting at their best and then if a fighter has to take has to miss a fight on last second notice as well. It, more often than not, a fighter isn't scared if they're if they're backing out on last second. More often than not, it, it's because they were doing everything they could to to be ready by that day that they had signed for. And whether it was physical, whether it was immunal or an immune system thing, whatever it was, they just weren't able to do so. They weren't able to get ready. But more more likely than not, they wanted the match. They just couldn't do it. So pretty rough situation for me fortunately in this case um my opponent was able to get another replacement so he was still able to compete i'm sure i'll be back sometime soon uh i'm sure i'll be able to compete again sometime soon but just wasn't a very positive situation for me and i i think going through that sometimes it, it helps you understand with mma a lot of times fighters go through similar situations and give you a little bit more room for empathy so i feel like i've always been pretty empathetic to fighters who who fight particularly worse than you expect them to, because oftentimes you think, hey, maybe something else was going on. Um, fighters who have to back out last second, I, I oftentimes don't look at them like, oh, hey, what's wrong with you? Why are you, why are you backing out? Are you scared? Like, I, I don't ever think in that way. But but having this experience, I think, just, just adds a little bit more empathy for me. I think it's a story I want to tell just so. And the, the next time you guys see a fighter who has to back out last second or a fighter who just does not look like themselves out there, maybe it's worth considering that they either fought through something that they really shouldn't have fought through and just really wanted to make it work or maybe they, they did everything they could to make it work and just couldn't do so because uh, unfortunately that's that's the downside of the sport and that's just something that happens that'll cover it for this week uh i'll be back next week can't wait to recap the event between ben Askren and uh, damian maya i hope that there's a lot of grappling breakdowns in there but maybe it'll just be a striking breakdown but either way it's gonna be a very interesting fight can't wait to watch the fight and i'll be recapping that and then talking about what's going on ahead of that as well uh, but that'll be next week